Must be like the wolf pack, not like six pack. Teamwork. Yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, episode three of There's No I in Podcast, a podcast about teams being in teams, running teams, making the best out of your team. Uh, today, uh, Sean and I, hello, Sean. Hi, Mark. Hi, guys. <laughs> uh, Sean and I are going to be talking to uh, Chris Mead, who is an improviser and a theatre maker, talking about how he puts teams together and how he runs teams as an improv coach how that differs from his work as an improv teacher and as an improv performer uh sean you're on the other end of uh a microsoft teams chat indeed yes um as always as always uh really looking forward to this one uh very different from from what we've spoken about so far uh and i think it's gonna be uh, really good for the audience to to get a flavor of improv because i think it's still maybe a little bit underground in the uk um to an extent um but we have uh, one of the one of the main guys so i have a question for you um, yes last week we spoke to ashley about kind of performing at the highest level and today i presume we're going to talk to chris about a different type of performing and well last week we had a we started talking about kind of competition and competitiveness yeah and i wanted to I wanted to ask you as a sports person and as a sports coach, how important and how useful is competition internally within a team? So not just I have, we're, we're fighting against the other guys, um, although we can talk about that as well, but like internal competition between members of a team. I think it's huge. I think it really is important. Um, Again, you know, on this podcast, we're kind of looking across the whole range from grassroots, schools, and then up to the kind of professional elite level. And I think if you look at the kind of elite level, uh, whether it's the NFL or the NBA um, or, you know, or the Premier um, League, because we're a British or the podcast <laughs> or the Premier League. I know. But Mark, I talk about football too much. I'm trying to diversify. You are let wearing me, a me New Patriots cap at the moment as us. It feels appropriate. No, this is true. Um, but I think all of them need competition for places. There has to be competition for places within that squad. And you can tell the teams that are doing well, they have people on the bench who are dying to get on and are very good players themselves, opposed to a team that has a small squad and the people coming off the bench are way, way down in terms of ability than than who they'd be coming on for. And I think really good, strong teams have that internal competition where they know week in, week out, if they don't perform, someone will come on for them and be just as good as them. And then they'll be the person on the bench. So I think internal competition is huge. How you manage it is very important. Yeah. I'm thinking about the idea of understudies uh, where you are the backup, but there is there is no chance or n no circumstance where you are going to be like let's say you're the the lead actor goes ill and the understudy steps in when that lead actor is better they're back they're in it's not it's not a competitive environment so that's quite interesting the idea that you might lose your place within this hierarchy is fascinating yeah. from from a team's no. point of view i like my assumption was that it would be harmful but it sounds like when you are training people to compete that's part well, of the because, training well because because mark otherwise because otherwise where's the motivation if you're if you're wanting to put on a really good production um to five thousand people mm. um if you look at a play or something like that if everyone there is not trying to be the best they can be then it's not going to be the best production yeah it's interesting. so if if everyone in the squad is not trying to win at the weekend then you don't have the best organization. You know, you don't have the best club in the country because everyone should be including the academy. So those young boys who are who are coming through or young girls at, at uh, 17, 18, if they're not knocking on the door and if they're not trying to be 
the best they can be, then in the next couple of years, you know, it's going to be difficult for you to be successful because at some point you may need to rely on those guys. So when you talk about the understudy, the understudy should be trying to be as best as the lead actor because come, come kind of showtime and the lead actor does, does go ill you know, okay, yes, they're different personalities and they may have a few different traits. You, you'll know better yeah. than me. But at the end of the day, they should still be delivering it's about, those it's a, lines. It's about being ready. Exactly. Where the, the structure of what ready and what you're ready for is different. Um, you've got, yeah, the competition, I suppose, doesn't happen at that point. Um, but we do have auditions. We do have our... Right. In order yeah. to build that hierarchy where our expectation is uh often particularly in other in school environments or in in amateur group environments where i'm sorry you didn't get the lead but i will expect you to be this smaller character as best as you blooming can and respect that you didn't get the lead and still be working towards making the best group production i still need you to be working as hard as you can at this what we might consider lesser role and you know there's the cliche there's no small parts only small actors it takes a you know it takes probably quite a quite a big person quite a quite a confident and uh generous person to take a role that they didn't want or you know weren't gearing themselves up for or didn't care for as much and give it the same amount of juice that they would have given the one that they actually, uh, you know, the job that they applied for, technically. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think there's a documentary. I think there's a documentary series just on just on on the role of third choice goalkeepers. <laughs> <laughs> because because there are goalkeepers in this country in the Premier League uh, who will play one game a season, who are on huge amounts of money but no every single week they're not gonna play unless two goalkeepers get ill or are injured during the game they're not coming on so they're training five days a week as a professional earning lots of money to not do what their profession is yeah so the psychology the psychology within that for me netflix if you're listening uh they need a t- they need a series on that. Yeah, and I'm, it's interesting because that is a very common job in the NFL is to have a third quarterback who's so unlikely to get on, but is supposed to be on the sidelines, on ready and holding a clipboard, analyzing the plays, being able to give his advice, give his expertise, do all of the things that a quarterback's brain does, even though he's not using his body. So that's, an, yeah, we we can get onto a lot about that, but I think everyone wants to actually hear from Chris. So uh, let us invite Chris into the chat and see what he has to say about improv, building teams in improv, coaching teams in improv, performing improv as a team. Uh, let's go straight on to that. Teamwork. Teamwork. Yes. yes. Sean, today I would like to introduce you to a friend of mine. His name is Chris Mead. He is an improviser and a theatre maker, internationally renowned improviser and teacher of improv. Uh, we've got him on today because Chris coaches improv teams. Really looking uh, forward to this one. This is definitely outside of my kind of uh, comfort zone um, in terms of a topic. Although me and you have had uh, many conversations, uh, as we've said before, in Room 163, where we have kind of tried to cross over sport and theatre and drama and improv. So really, really looking forward to this one. So thank you very much, Chris, for coming on the podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Mark. (laughs) And we're very, very happy to have you. Chris, I gave you the uh, thumbnail introduction. Could you tell us and the listeners at home a little more about yourself? Yeah, of course. Uh, Yeah, so my name's Chris Mead. I'm an improviser in that I perform and teach improv. And I do that all over the world now, which is incredible. I started about 10 years ago uh, to do improvised theatre, which is theatre without a script, theatre where you don't know what's going to happen for the duration of the performance. I started doing what we call short form, which is if anyone knows anything about improv, they all know whose line is it anyway. And that's what we call short form. It's where there are small games that last for one or two minutes and they have a very specific set of rules like you can only talk in questions or during the scene one of you will always be standing up one of you will be sitting down and one of you will be lying down at all times and you have to kind of work that out 
amongst yourself. I think that was a staple of my Friday nights. Yeah, mine too when I was growing up. It's amazing. <laughs> so improv has been around in the US for a very long time. Uh, and it's been around here in, in different forms as well. But very much in the last 10 years, we've been, we've seen a huge upsurge in the popularity of improv as an art form as something for mainstream audiences to go and see on a Friday or a Saturday night and as I say I started about 10 years ago and have watched this UK community get bigger and better and and more brilliant right up to now where some of us like Showstopper have won an Olivier award against so an improvised musical that won an award against scripted musicals or (laughs) Ostentatious who have this incredible West End run now and whose individual members are are incredibly well recognized within the larger comedy community so essentially we're sort of finding us our space in the mainstream now and for the last five years I've had the privilege to to teach improv to hundreds of students a year and also and I think this is most relevant for your podcast coach teams and the difference between teaching and coaching is uh, as a teacher I'll come in and try and just generally raise everyone's skill level across the board and as a coach I'll come in and go okay what does your team want to achieve and then try and facilitate those improvements in any way I can. Okay can I be absolutely oblivious and say uh, when you are teaching something that's completely made up what is it that you're teaching? What is it you're trying to get the students to do? You're teaching skills and behaviours that allow people to be comfortable in chaos essentially um (laughs) when when you step on stage as an improviser and you know that you have got no plan you don't know what's going to happen in the next i know 45 minutes to an hour and a half uh, there's been a lot of research that shows that people go into kind of fight or flight at that point their adrenaline goes up they uh, they panic it's scary so by by rehearsing by by being taught we we get behaviors that allow us to calm down and to just play you know the the, what we want is improvisers who are just happy to play are open and observant and listening to each other Hmm. not demonstrating panic behavior so yeah it's just getting people to chill out and have a good time and there's just a hundred thousand different ways to do that and in terms of once they've learned how to chill out are there, are there other skills that you're layering on top that make them particularly good at improvising? Or is that something that you start to bring into that coaching element? Yeah, depending on what kind of improv they want to do. So I think we're slightly egotistical as an art form by taking improv and we just call it improv, right? And But improvising is anything where people are making it up as they go along from dance to sculpture to... Jazz, nice. Yeah, exactly. So, but... <laughs> But we're doing this specific form. And uh, so if you want to be funny, then there's certain skills. You want to be able to play characters different to yourself. Uh, You want to be able to get punchlines to jokes or or put funny content in, recognize what's weird or interesting about the scene you're in and elevate that, uh, exaggerate that. If you're more at the theater end of improv, you want to be able to connect emotionally and truthfully with someone else. You want to be able to tell a good story and know where you are in that story. And throughout all of it, something I think that's central to it all is you want to be making everyone else look good. So improv isn't about making yourself look good. It's about seeing your fellow, your your stage partners, your scene partners, and seeing how can I make them look incredible and know that they're doing that for you too. So it's instilling this culture of looking outwards, of listening, of, of being there for each other. Chris, if you take a team sport, if you look at most team sports, sometimes there can be 30 people on the on the pitch. If you take football, there's 22 men or women out there and they're running around. And if you're not really into football, it can look chaotic and it can look like chaos. However, there are so many structures in place that have allowed those 22 players to play in a particular way. Yeah. So when you look at improv, even though we're talking about chaos is is like you've just kind of said there you know so many layers 
within that chaos where it is actually very, very structured, but just the end product is chaos. Yeah, no. If that makes sense. It does, yeah. It's really interesting. We do have what we call forms, and they can be incredibly um, concrete, the forms that people are following, or they can be very loose, and it depends on the kind of product you want to create, and also just how the players, the improv players within that team want to present it, right? So at one end, with short form, that's incredibly structured. Two minutes, we're going to do this. And then um, and then at the other end, you could have something that's incredibly free form, uh, where no one knows anything that's happening. And between those two poles, there's loads of structure. So the most famous is called the Herald. Okay. And that was developed in Chicago, Um and California, actually. We've had a lot of Saturday Night Live conversations in Room 163, so yeah. Sean is familiar <laughs> a little bit with the history of Chicago improv. But tell, yeah, tell us about the Herald. So the Herald is just one form that's become particularly important because it was taught by Del Close at IO, or Improv Olympic, as it used to be called before the Olympics sued them. And, <laughs> uh, and then, because of that one team uh, who were called the Upright Citizens Brigade took the Herald and brought it to New York and then they became incredibly famous. Amy Poehler was part of that team and they also taught Harold. So Harold has become really very important and that's just a structure where you have three scenes. I mean, there's more to it than this. Three scenes, then you have a group scene and then you go back to those first three scenes in some way thematically or narratively and then you have another group game and then another three scenes. So you're essentially... um, weaving those together and in, in fact those last three scenes can can take characters from each other's they don't even have to be three scenes they come together to create a conclusion so that's an example of an incredibly well thought through and very structured kind of improv but there are other improvisers that have no idea literally no idea what they're going to do before they go on stage they don't know if they're going to tell a story they don't know if they're going to do freeform dance they don't know if they're going to be funny or make people cry but i would say that isn't that's the exception rather than the rule mostly people kind of know a bit about what they're going to do before they go on in terms of the overall structure and that's the i'm assuming uh where we'll start talking about your role as a coach right yeah is to take groups that are intending on performing and am i right in thinking that everyone you coach you're coaching towards going on stage in front of an audience that's right yeah you wouldn't coach a group of people who are just doing it for fun that would be uh, and those 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 aims of that group would be to find a form that they like or to find a way of working together again a huge range uh one might be we've been working together for five years but we've just never quite nailed this skill set so can you help us with that or it could be we want to do a improvised action movie and we don't know which skills improv skills available to us we need to fashion this form so can you help us bring this form together how much structure do we need what I'm always looking for as a coach is to put enough structure in that they can do the form they want to do but not so much that it constricts them so sometimes I talk about it like a tiny bird and you want to hold the bird (laughs) this is you've got to hold the bird enough that it won't fly away but not so much that you will crush the life out of its tiny hollow bones. You know, you've got to get it between those two. We have the podcast title, Mark. We have episode three title. Don't it's crush like the hollow bones out of your teeth. Yeah, exactly. Chris, um, just, a, just a quick one there. So when, when we're now talking about coaching uh, and coaching these teams towards whatever their goal may be, and then we talk about the forms and the different variations of forms and structures, where does kind of your philosophy and your style come into things? Because, you know, like all of us, we're going to have potentially a way we like to play football. We like to sure. play netball. We like to improv. So would you would you say there's no way you can't not put some of yourself into the coaching that you're doing? Or do you very much try and separate your preferences and your style, your philosophy onto the group, if that makes sense? No, it makes complete sense. I think there's probably all-star coaches who could coach any style of improv, um, but I'm not really that. I have something that I'm particularly interested in, and I think I'm well-known enough that when groups ask me to coach, they're asking me to coach on on this thing. Uh And the thing that I love 
is uh, emotional honesty and connection between improvisers. So there is a lot of improv. Obviously, it has this uh, with you were talking about Saturday Night Live, and that's very sketch based, very aggressive, um, like uh, feet for, first foot Aggre- forward aggressively kind of improv. hunting a joke. Yeah, exactly. And uh, to me, I find that. I don't enjoy that as much. I enjoy improv where the joke comes from the fact that two people are trying to connect and trying to be as real as possible. And the laughs are laughs of recognition and delight. When people are trying to be funny, I just go, no, you're not funny. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like watching the effort of people trying to be funny. So what I coach and what I specialize in is improv where the laugh is a byproduct of trying to create interesting memorable theater oh that's so poncy (laughs) sounds good to me i'm gonna put you on the spot right now and say in that case how does a person coach effortlessness and i'm gonna put the same thing to you sean because i think there's probably something about oh my god they've made that look so easy on sports pitches i can imagine a whole bunch of people have sat watching a football match going i don't see what they're doing that's so impressive uh, same with you, Chris. How how do you coach that effortlessness, or try and what? Where does that come from? Um, so for me, I always use sports metaphors in improv class, which is hilarious for anyone that knows me, because I, much like Mark, <laughs> don't know very much about sports at all. Um, but I did have a personal trainer for a while, and she always talked about m- muscle memory, and that if you do something enough, then your body knows how to do it, and you don't, your mind doesn't have to engage; it just happens. Uh, if you do. I guess if you're a football player, then if you do a thousand corners, take a thousand corners, then your body kind of knows what to do. And it's the same in improv, right? There are just things like going on stage and adopting a character that is not your own or having a viewpoint um, immediately as a character or an opinion about the other person. This is something that when you begin, you have to think about. And as you you know, if you have a good coach, they will put you through exercises so that by the time you step on stage, your body knows what to do. Your mind isn't even part of that, that this flow state. And I think there's this idea of, you know, the conscious, unconscious expertise, where when you start doing anything, you are unconscious of the fact that you can't do it, then you're conscious of the fact that you can't do it. And then you can do it, but you have to be conscious of the fact you can do it. And then finally, the the best version of all is where you are unconsciously competent. You are just doing that thing because your body knows how. One one hundred percent, yeah. I th- I think I think when it's it's funny um, when you when you do a post match interview in most sports, if someone has done something amazing and fantastic, you know the interviewer is there. How did you do that? How did it feel? You know, what was it going through your mind? And most of the time, it's a, uh, I just done it. I didn't really, I didn't think about it. I didn't, I don't remember it. It just happened. You know, if you do it like a bicycle kick outside the box and it's like twenty yards out and you've just done a bicycle kick and it's flown in the back of the net, you're you weren't really thinking about it, you know. It just happened because of all the times you've tried to do it, you didn't think about it, you didn't think, will this go in? Will it not go in? Will I miss? Will I you know, will I score? What what happens then? There was no result in it. It was just a perfect movement that came off. But that came from a thousand times of trying it, exactly like you said, Chris. You know, as soon as Mark asked the question, I just wrote in big letters, practice, you know, (laughs) like practice, you know, because none of these things just come to you unless, as you've said, you've done it over and over and over and over again. And I think young people, you know, trying to be athletes or maybe trying to be fantastic uh, improv artists or, 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 or actors or actresses, they just see the end product. And they don't understand that that's been 10 years of trying to perfect something, you know, if, 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 if at all you can perfect something. So, so Chris, what do those reps look like in a, in a Chris Mead coached, would you call it rehearsal? Yeah, I think I'd call it rehearsal or a practice. I, I'd also use that terminology. Um, well, it, it depends on the skill. So say I want you to walk onto stage and immediately have an emotional point of view about the other character you're on stage with so that yeah. you instantly have a relationship. I will literally get people to stand in front of each other, close their eyes, conjure up an emotion, and then open their eyes, look at the other person, 
feel something and say the first line of the scene or maybe the first four lines of the scene and then I'll stop them and I'll make them do it again with a completely other, a different set of emotions. The same two improvisers and a thousand different uh, relationships. <laughs> Not a thousand, that'd be a long one. Breaking down this outcome into kind of this outcome of performance into kind of constituent moments and just repeating them out of context almost yeah until you just naturally do it until you step on stage and you don't get scared and your heart doesn't beat you just do the things that you are programmed to do essentially Mm. and uh just to take that take that into something that you've been uh involved in in the past the idea of of programming an improviser (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is the subject of one of one of your uh, other podcasts is it not that's right yeah i do a podcast called yes bot where we pretend to program a robot the idea is if you could put five lines of code into a robot what would they be you know what would be the five most important um suggestions not really rules uh five behaviors that would create the perfect improviser so it's just a setup in order to uh, talk about what's most important to any given improviser hmm. would that chris would that be i mean last week um well for the past two weeks now we've been talking to um talking to different people and and, and discussing kind of these team cultures and values uh a code of ethics uh, that's maybe set up by by the teams themselves or their managers is is that kind of along the same lines where if we all kind of agreed on these five lines of code we would pretty much do okay most of the time. Uh, a process to to create or instill that sh- those shared values. So I think there's two things there. Firstly, I think different rules for different shows. So the rules are there to create a certain show. You remember earlier I was saying, what if we were trying to improvise an action film? The rules that we would follow to create that show would be incredibly different to if we were going to do a... Uh, Shakespeare show for instance we um, so there's different things but when you're talking about ethics and a set of values I think that transcends the actual format of the show and I do think it's very important you need to talk about respect and how you're going to treat each other um, I think improv should never be punching down in its humour, so it should never make anyone's identity in terms of race, uh, gender uh, identity, um, uh, disabilities, sexuality. All of these things are what makes a person who they are, and you should never make fun of that to get a joke in improv. I mean, that sort of, for me, those are lines that I would never cross. And, and I is would that something that you don't take team. for granted at the beginning of a team uh, coming together or early early days, even if they've been together? Is that something that you would reiterate or would you wait for it to come up? No, I'd always say right at the beginning because you never want to do it when there's an actual example that's happened in the rehearsal room. <laughs> yes. It's yeah. so much better to have said it at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, you remember what we said at the beginning? This is an example of that. Not, oh, no, I have to talk about that because yeah. you have been <laughs> tremendously racist just then. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, but, but Chris, I... Oh, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, I think I think if, if, we, if we look at, uh, you know, maybe a school setting now, um, I think that... I think sometimes we can miss that really key point at the beginning of a year, at the beginning of a class, at the beginning of a, of a sports team, a drama uh, rehearsal, whatever it may be, to kind of really nip those things in the bud before they even become an issue because you've outlined it. And I think sometimes, whether it be business or in the, you know, just in the working world in general, I think sometimes we're not really clear about what is expected and how we need to treat each other, etc. Um before we go into a thing and then that's when you know a lot of things pop up that can be negative yeah exactly and there's a lot of safeguarding and things to think about especially in improv because if we are talking about uh pretending to be in love with someone right Mm. two people on stage who are doing a love scene there is there's so much there about what people who are in love would touch each other they would kiss they would hold each other you can't just do that. You can't just let people run into that and, and, and do it. There's so much in there. There's so much of gender politics in there as well. So a lot of the time, especially with younger students, you're just saying blanket, 
people are not going to kiss on the mouth, okay, ever. If uh, people are not going to touch any area that you wouldn't touch in, in real life. And if, if an act requires consent in real life, it requires in an improv. You don't get a magic yeah. pass to just do whatever you want just because you're making things up. And Because yeah, we've said we're going to take, take you by surprise with our, with our response or our line, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Chris, is, is, is there at the very top then maybe say, uh, you know, a Hollywood block, uh, blockbuster? I've, I, I think I saw somewhere that there are now intimacy coaches, yes. I think they're called, yeah. to, to work with the actors. Is that's, that a thing or have I made that up in my no, head? No, that's so interesting because <laughs> I've just worked with two of them actually uh, very oh, wow. recently. Yeah, so Hollywood is now seeing that sex scenes are like fight scenes, right? They need someone to coordinate them. So uh, intimacy intimacy coordinators are fight choreographers for um, love scenes and it doesn't have to be a sex scene actually it could be anything where people are intimate with each other but that still has a script in a film in improv yeah you can just decide to do those things and so I met this brilliant uh, improviser called Rama Nicholas who is an improviser but she's also an intimacy coach for tv and film and she's right at the bleeding edge of this new topic of how do you apply all of that brilliant work that intimacy coaches are doing in scripted work to improv where you can make a decision in the moment? And so I did a whole weekend about how do you start doing that? And I mean, it was so many different things, but essentially it boils down to you talk a lot beforehand and anything that you do on stage, you go slow and you're constantly looking for visual consent or actually vocal consent. And just saying yes is not consent. It has to be enthusiastic. You've got to see that people are really wanting to go there because another thing about improv is that our central rule is this rule called yes and, which is the idea that when someone brings up an idea, you immediately go, yes, that's true. Because if you don't accept the reality of the other person's scene, then you're in two different scenes. But the problem with yes and in an intimacy context is are students just saying yes to things because they think that's what the art form requires? Are they doing things that they don't want to do on stage because we've drilled them to say yes to things? And yes and doesn't apply if you feel unsafe or you're not enjoying what you're doing. And so there's a whole minefield that we've got to work through. I think that's very much for me about having done some improv uh, and done some improv with you. It's, It's about creating that space to uh, to approach it as performers before having to approach it as characters so that i as a improviser can look at the person i'm working with and there's two dialogues going on there's a dialogue between us as mm-hmm. characters but there's also this dialogue that is based on the fact that we're not surprised that we do have this foundation of of these conversations between the two actors so that i can look at a person that i'm I know I'm not taking by surprise in any of these ways. And can I just uh, speak to that very quickly? Because the audience sees that too. They see both of those scenes. They see the characters playing the scene and they say the and they see the improvisers like metaphorical puppet masters above the characters uh, working together as well. And the audience see both of those things simultaneously. And some of the joy in watching truly great improvisers is watching both of those things. We delight in the actual scene and how funny and great and beautiful the dialogue and the scene work is, but we also marvel at the skill of the improvisers communicating wordlessly above that scene. Um, so I, I guess it would be like watching, you know, there's the the drama of watching a football match, but there's also then going the individual skill of the players and how they're working together is something else you can enjoy um so you can enjoy things on different levels definitely there are a couple of things that we've mentioned already that i think personally underpin my idea of how i build a group or how i build a team uh that i that thing that you said about making sure you're making the other person look good like how do i support someone else's good idea or someone else's skill or someone else's offering and that's fundamentally tied to this idea of yes and as well like i'm going to make the assumption that 
I'm ready to support you or I'm ready to build on your good idea. I'm looking at you for what you're going to do that's amazing. What are some of the other kind of Chris Mead must-haves in terms of team building, whether that's stuff you do with them in order to create that team early on or stuff you're looking for throughout in terms of what makes a good improv team? Um, first of all, I think listening is even more important than yes and. Uh, yes and gets all the glory in improv circles as being <laughs> our va- foundational principle, right? But you can't accept and build on someone else's idea if you haven't truly listened to that idea. So this idea of active listening, of really switching your sensibility from broadcast, I want to speak all the time, to listening, to hearing exactly what they said right to the end, because a lot of the time when we're talking, and I'm sure it's true when you're interviewing people on podcasts as well, is we are Rolodexing what we're going to say next. And mm. once we start doing that, we 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 go back from the conversation, we pull back a little bit from the conversation, and we're not really listening to what the person said. And you can't do that in improv if you want to really accept and build on what everyone else is doing. So listening, I think, is incredibly important to that. How do you coach uh, that? What's your What's your rep for that? It's a it's an exercise called one minute life story and I like it because there's a twist to it in that people when they first play it think that the game is about being able to summarize their entire life in one minute but actually the twist is that it's not them that's playing that's doing the rep it's the person doing the listening because at the end of it we then ask them to speak back exactly what the other person has said so tell their life story back to the person who's just spoke so actually it's the listener that's doing the rep not the uh, speaker if that makes sense Chris I think that's a that's a really interesting one as a kind of a as one to do you know within a school uh, setting especially if you're kind of a personal tutor um, or a form tutor as, as some schools would refer to it as because you know teenagers these days seem to and you know I don't want to paint them all with the same brush <laughs> but we're in the in the kind of age of social media their kind of um, their concentration levels seem to be a lot a lot shorter and you need to kind of bring them in really quickly um so in terms of something like a one minute life story where they're the ones who are kind of being challenged to listen would be really interesting i think um to kind of see what comes from that because a lot of the time (laughs) if you've not got it out in 20 seconds i think uh you know what what you want to say they're kind of zoned out (laughs) yeah and you find that when you have been truly heard then you're much happier to listen to the other person. So when you feel like your point of view, your story has been truly heard, then actually you probably will give people the benefit of the doubt and probably will listen to them harder and better afterwards too. I think that's a massive point. I think that's a massive point, to, to be honest. I can attest to having gone into an improvising environment, the kind of the good vibes that you get off of that feeling of being heard by people that is present in a good, positive improvising environment is incredibly empowering. And also, it's not just that listening, because that's just the yes part of the yes and. Uh, then having your idea taken and someone adding something to your idea and knowing that they would never have done that idea if you hadn't said your thing first that's what makes yes and truly brilliant i think this idea of um we would never have created this scene except it was us two the two people on stage at this moment uh with whatever's going on in our brains at that moment then this scene is only going to be created uh, right now in the now moment and i think that's really interesting Yeah, and more than that i wouldn't have been able to make that myself no without your input yeah, um, yes and is like a network cable that allows two brains to think bigger thoughts than they would have thought on their own. Can I ask you about something in improv that is beautifully mysterious, but that I think you'll, I think I know your answer to, um, this idea of group mind? Mm-hmm. Where does that, I mean, is that is that, an, is that actually a thing? This idea that, that we're all thinking on the same wavelength, we're all networked together and come up with the same ideas or responses is that such a uh, where do you sit on on that on the idea that that we can share a group uh, consciousness almost a group mind between between a team i think group mind is very interesting and very valuable but it falls down if people think it's something mystical group mind isn't mystical at all it's just when people work together a lot when they rehearse enough that they've been in enough different situations then they'll start 
knowing how someone else will probably react. And more than that, they will build trust. And when someone moves, when someone makes a narrative or character move, they'll just move in response, trusting that they know what they're doing. So it's a mixture of familiarity and trust. And it isn't mystical, but it is brilliant. Um, it can also... It's just a product of all of these things you've been talking about. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's a product of doing the reps, but doing the reps together with a group of people. Um, one of my old coaches in improv once said that if you want to become a truly great improviser, you've got to do two things. Firstly, find a group of people that you love, that you trust, that you want to play with every week that become your improv family. But secondly, always find ways to throw yourselves into chaotic crazy improv that you've never you know played with people you've never played with before put yourself in situations where you're out of your comfort zone so that you're always growing and finding new things because you could become too comfortable if you only play with your group mind people but you'll never create something that's truly yours if you only jump into jams with strangers you've got to do both of those things Chris, um, just uh, I'm going to try and reference. I forgot the name of the film, so maybe Mark will help me out because we have spoken it's about gonna it It's going to be Don't Think Twice. Yeah, so, so, so my movie reference of Don't Think Twice. How do you find that, that group that you, you love as a family if every single one of you is striving to be the best they can be or is using potentially improv as a stepping stone into acting or comedy or their one man show and something else or woman's show, if that makes sense. So I, I, I got the feeling from that film of all of so many different dynamics, which may not be a good, uh, it, you know, maybe they got it wrong. But I think I think Mark said it was kind of accurate in some in some ways. Um, so, yeah, how do you find that kind of love for a family if, as I said, you all kind of maybe have your own kind of end goals? Firstly, it is that is very accurate, I think, for the for at least for the US context. And secondly, yeah. uh, for the UK context, there isn't that direct line between improvising and then becoming a writer on a sitcom or getting on SNL. Those lines, right. those thoroughfares, career kind of lines aren't those connections aren't there in the uk it's not like the bbc come to improv uh, nights to pluck people out of obscurity so i think we're very in some ways we're quite lucky that we are not vying for a few positions on national tv in that way but secondly you're never going to be good at improv really if you just try and grab the limelight you're not going you're going to be known as someone who isn't good to play with the people who are great improvisers are the supporters. They're the people who are making everyone else look good the best and therefore making themselves to a sort of untrained audience eye look kind of quite normal, right? Everyone around them is the superstars yeah. because they're giving them all of the all of the focus. If you get a team of people who are all doing that, then you can become a really close family. And of course, I'm not trying to paint, you know, there's always times where someone gets an incredible success or, or you know, someone is invited to a brilliant improv festival that you wanted to be invited to. There is obviously little things like that all the time. But at the end of the day, any improviser worth it sort knows that they are only where they are because of the people they've surrounded themselves with. They are only successful because of their group and team. And I think that keeps things in a really nice, familiar way. I'm uh, conscious of time. So there's a couple of things I just wanted to ask you before we have to say goodbye. The first is you mentioned a couple of the very long running and popular improv groups, Ostentatious and Showstoppers. Um, you yourself have been part of an extremely popular improv group, uh, Project 2, for quite a long time now. Seven years, is it? Yeah, it must be about seven years now, yeah. How have you managed being in that team for that long? Well, it's interesting because Project 2 is now a duo. <laughs> so there's only two <laughs> of us. Um, well, two performers on stage. We now actually have a third member who's our musician, who's incredible. But in terms of... And, and I should say a musician you also improvise with, the offers that they make musically are just as important as any office you could make on stage. But me and my duo partner, the actual person that I'm standing on stage with, Katie Shute, um, so we've been improvising together, as I say, for around seven years now. Um, and it is hard. It's really hard. It's like 
it's like a relationship, really. There's things that she's brilliant at. There's things that I'm good at. We don't see the world in the same way. She's in, in I mean, she's a lot better than me. She's more experienced. She's incredible admin. I'm a bit head in the clouds. And I think sometimes she's dragging me along, really. But I've also learned from her, I think. And she's also, I would, I would guess, she's more of an introvert. She does, she, she's brilliant with people, but it takes energy for her to be brilliant with people so a lot of the networking a lot of just sitting around and talking afterwards that giving me energy and I would stay there all night talking to people whereas after a while uh, she is brilliant and funny and then just has to leave right because there just comes a moment where she doesn't have energy anymore um, and so I think finding your perfect group is about balancing skill sets and attributes, uh, not just artistically on stage, but also the kind of person you are. And we've got into crazy fights along the way. Uh, you know, there's points where we've nearly broken up, or one of us feels like they're carrying the other one. That's always Katie carrying me. Um, <laughs> but we we keep communication open. And I think one of the reasons we do is because the art form that we're both part of encourages open communication and listening so we're actually at an advantage when we bring some of the skills off stage into our personal interactions yeah especially when it comes to resolving any of those conflicts yeah and the second thing and i'll call it the last thing that we talk about um sean and i have taken to reflecting on the idea that coaches make coaches like the the, the person who we are as a coach or as a team runner is kind of this mishmash of all the people who've trained us or coached us yeah. or been our team leader before um so i just wanted to ask like who who are the coaches that made you and uh, like what was it that they that you've inherited from them that you are passing down into the the lineage um so i yeah it's absolutely true that is i think you carry all the best parts of all the coaches you had into your own work uh, they inspire you and then hopefully you inspire others my first coach was tim sniffin who is an improviser from an incredible team called baby wants candy i think i got from him this idea of uh, how important play is uh, that you really do need to be having fun if you're if you get too in your head about it then there's really no point you doing it and an audience will gravitate towards playfulness so he instilled in me this idea of above everything else you have to have fun actually katie my current partner uh, duo partner started off as my coach and she is one of the I want the best technical improviser in terms of uh, what are the skills we need? What are the tools we need to teach in order? You know, it can't just be play. You can't just be having fun. If you're having fun and the audience isn't, you've, <laughs> that's not good enough, right? What are the, <laughs> yeah. the tools to create great theatre? She's really instilled that in me. Um, so I think those two almost, yeah, poles of improv, of uh, joy and technique are the two things that I'm trying to marry. And I got them from those two, from Tim and Katie. Amazing. Sean, is there anything you would like to add or question that you'd like to ask before we wrap up? Uh, it's, been, it's been really interesting to kind of uh, look at a kind of different different sort of genre of kind of teams. Um, and obviously you're working at such a high level that it's, um, it's, really, it's really good to have someone sort of in that industry to give us a really good idea um, of, of kind of what, it, what it's like and the teams within that and, and your kind of coaching side of it. I think, I think maybe the partnership uh, with Katie on Project 2, maybe... Uh, me and Mark will uh, discuss some of that uh, in in room one six three and kind of how yeah. we've how we've been working together as a duo because we we do actually you know outside of our roles we have actually helped each other kind of as mates but also as colleagues as well professionally and so there's lots there's lots within I think that working relationship as well um, to kind of uh, to to look into and see what's what what like why does it work I Definitely. guess. Most of the time. <laughs> I always joke with my classes uh, that uh, 
everyone in improv are people who were just bad at sports but long to be part <laughs> of a team you know we're the people that <laughs> that's brilliant almost always we're the people that have been picked last in the playground for teams and we just long <laughs> to be with people and be able to contribute to a team um it it's the case so often with improvisers like we found a way to play together as a team that doesn't involve having muscles or hand and eye coordination oh you've wrapped it up so beautifully <laughs> Yeah, really good point, Chris. The inherent human need for teamwork. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you, Chris. That's uh, it's been marvelous to have you chat, and we can. We're bound to have the rest of this conversation off the off off the airwaves, but uh, uh, definitely, if we could uh, grab you back on at some point for an update, once people have started asking us questions about it, that'd be amazing. I would love to. Yeah, anytime you want. Brilliant. Chris, do you want to do you want to just give us a, a a goodbye with plugs if you want? Sure, yeah. Um, goodbye <laughs> with plugs. No, yeah, no. If you're interested in improv, I'm a huge ambassador for it. I think. I mean, it's changed my life artistically and socially. The people I've met have been incredible. I I think if you are even ever thinking, should I try a beginners improv class? You should. If you are in the UK and if you're in London, you have so many choices uh, available to you. Uh, I teach for Hoopla. So if you put Hoopla Improv into Google, you'll be able to see all the classes there. But I'm also artistic director of the Nursery Theatre. We offer classes and shows as well. And there are other brilliant improv theatres as well, including the Free Association, who are who are incredible too. So yeah, just get down to an improv class. And if you want to know more about me, I have a website, chrisme.co. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks so much. So that was Chris Mead, uh, an incredible improviser, uh, a phenomenal teacher and a really, really excellent coach of improv. What did you make of that, Sean? That was great. Really, really great. Um, Obviously, I'm going to be biased as it's on our podcast, but I found that really interesting. Um, I hope our audience did uh, because it is so far removed um, for for us to think about. We think about theatre, we think about big Hollywood movies, we think about sports teams and, and huge cultures within that. But if we take something very specific like uh, like improv work, uh, it's so... It's so funny to see there's still those similarities. There's still comparisons to be made. Mm. There's definitely um, a point where know? they split, though. There's definitely a point where having built this foundation, your philosophies are going to go one way and my philosophies are going to go the other. And actually, they're quite almost diametrically opposite to each other. No, true. Uh, no, exactly. And I think that, yeah. So I think listening to Ashley last week and Chris this week, like the, the more... Uh, the more that's kind of come out and I'm, I'm hoping that depending on who we get on here that's a conversation we can continue having uh where we're not looking for it to be the same all the time and and just us to stroke our uh much bigger beards now and go oh yes aren't we clever for recognizing that all teams are the same no definitely 100 definitely and um yeah, I think I think everyone's going to have their own idea of what makes a great team. And I think that's why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place, to try and get as many people's views as possible. Um, and I think that's what what makes it interesting. And, you know, if we take tiny bits uh, and pieces from everyone, hopefully we'll be a little bit more knowledgeable and we'll make, you know, our own kind of judgments on what makes that kind of, uh, you know, amazing team. Which cues me up to say if there is anyone you want on uh, or any area you want to hear from a team leader or a team builder in, uh, you can uh, leave a comment where comments are left, but also uh, at Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, just a place that you can start to uh, feedback to us what you want to hear. Uh, so Twitter and Instagram at no i podcast um that's it for this week we've gone way longer than we thought we would but the more we conversations we have like this the more exciting and the more interesting and the more in depth we get so as usual sean say goodbye bye guys <laughs> and uh, i will also say goodbye until the next time goodbye 
Must be like the wolf pack. Teamwork. Yes.